The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Welcome to the Cinematography Podcast. That's what we're doing. That's right. Yes, yes. That's why we're in this room. I'm Ben Rock. I'm Ilya Friedman. And uh, we have a very exciting show for you today. Who do we have on the show today, Ilya? Is, is it that exciting? Do you not know who's on the show today? I don't, actually. Okay. So it is exciting, but I think that this whole show, we've done this very show before, uh, except not in the same way. This is the coming-of-age episode of the Sundance Film Festival at film festivals, coming-of-age stories are a uh, standard de rigueur, if you may. And this, again, was was no exception this year. We interviewed the filmmakers behind Beast Beast and Blast Beast. Not to confuse you there, but... Uh, those the, are... So there's two movies. One is called Beast Beast and one is called Blast Beast. Blast, sorry, Blast Beat. Oh, okay. So Beast Beast and Blast Beat. Correct. Which are two separate movies. Two separate movies, and we interviewed... So the, I, so my script for <laughs> Beast Beast and Blast Beat, which is a buddy cop movie I've been working on, yeah, that, still viable. Yeah, so still could totally... Well, neither of these films have distribution yet. Okay. So, uh, yeah, you you could, in theory, if, if th- right. something doesn't happen, you could you could beat them both to the punch. I'm going to get that spec out there. Yeah. Got to get that spec on the street now. All right. But, but here's the thing. You know, both interesting movies, well-received movies, but... In years past, I think it might have been just expected that they would be distributed by now or have a deal in place, and they may have something in the works, but so far, nothing public. Usually before you could say me and Earl and the Dying Girl, you'd, you'd be sold. The, that, that used to be the case, but you know, it's, it was an interesting sort of fractured year. Uh, movies that I thought were really going to do well um, are a little bit quiet right now, and others that came in with distribution uh, still haven't emerged yet. So it's, uh, there, and there are some others that got picked up along the way, so you know, things, things have happened. Uh, there was definitely some, some early favorites, but the, I'm not going to spend too much time talking about the who got what deal and what in this episode, but that's um, not what we're about. No, no. Well, I mean, we talk about it a little bit, but you know, we do talk about business, but we're kind of wrapping up our sort of uh, amalgam episodes of Sundance here. And then we're going to get into some other stuff later. And uh, coming up next week, actually, you'll really uh, enjoy that. We're, we're coming back to uh, Jacob Ire. Oh man. So that that uh, is awesome. So yes. And you're way better at pronouncing his name. I, (laughs) I, I was very ashamed in that he would like seriously say his name and I would say it as best I could. And I feel like I'm a, a reasonably decent mimic and I just couldn't pronounce his name. Uh, and, and actually, to be fair, it's it's Jokob. So yeah. Jokob. Not, uh, but, uh, who, Jokob. Shot, who shot Chernobyl? Chernobyl, of course. Uh, Holy crap. One of the best television shows of the last... Uh, I don't know. We've had an embarrassment of riches of great TV in, over the last several years. But Chernobyl is just a gorgeous-looking, brilliantly designed, brilliantly written, uh, brilliantly everything TV series. And you get to talk to him at length about it and I will tell you I think I listened to all the other interviews of him out there and no they you guys do not overlap a lot of territory so I think that anyone who mm. may have even heard him anywhere else will definitely want to hear this one excellent excellent 
All right, so before we dive into our close focus, uh, a lot of stuff has happened, particularly here in Hollywood. And, oh, my God. You know, stuff that we've talked about quite a bit. Uh, Harvey Weinstein now is convicted, convicted rapist. A, a convicted Harvey. rapist, yes. And I, rem I remember us actually recording an episode right after the first accusations were dropping about Harvey Weinstein. Well, it was the water cooler talk, uh, yeah. you know, of almost nothing well, else at that and, time. Well, and it was sort of the, the vanguard of kind of the, the Me Too moment when, when that was first just starting to be a thing and I think a lot of us being like okay is this going to be sort of a cultural shift or is this going to be just like a speed bump on the road to business as usual and I actually believe it's a cultural shift I think it's uh, it's a welcome cultural shift and we're just a, we're just the, the early stages I think that some other people who may have dodged some bullets are uh, got some bullets heading towards it yeah I'm not naming names but I have a few in my head right now yeah. yeah the thing about Weinstein that actually surprised me the most and I probably said this on the podcast at the time is that everybody in town hated his guts and yet for whatever reason yeah I had never heard the rape allegations. I I, I, I don't think rape's one of those things that just really comes up in casual conversation. Like, but oh, I by think, the way, Harvey Weinstein raped me. Okay, but but like, for instance, when the accusations first surfaced about Bill Cosby, it was no surprise to no anybody. No surprise. No, that we was, had all that, heard the rape the rape right. allegations about Bill Cosby, and Bill Cosby, other outside of that, was beloved, mm. and with Harvey Weinstein, he was kind of reviled, and then on top of that. It turns out he was, uh, you know, uh, basically a serial rapist. Yeah, that that doesn't help you if you're if people don't like you. <laughs> really, that's, yeah. uh, that's bad. That's but it. but he was like he was feared within the industry. And feared, I, I yeah. remember listening to Craig Mazin on the Script Notes podcast. The bring it full circle. The guy who created Chernobyl, and he had worked for a long time at the Weinstein Company, and he said that everybody who worked there was in constant fear and was under constant oppression. So it doesn't surprise any of those people that uh, that Weinstein was doing what he was doing, but that was why they weren't all like outing him every five minutes because like everybody felt like his, his foot was on their throat all the time. Mm. Uh, he just sounded, he sounds like just the kind of person that like certain aspects of that uh, has flown in the industry over the years, but also just like the kind of, it's like a caricature of the character that Kevin Spacey played in swimming with sharks or something like these people who are just such extreme abusers and are enabled to continue to be abusers. Well, this wasn't intended to be our George Foyt uh, no, close focus. This isn't segment. the close focus at all. Actually, this is this is something else. So, Ilya, what is our close focus segment today? Uh, you wanted to talk about the role of the executive. I think that executives maybe they have more of a misunderstood part. Uh, you know, Harvey Weinstein, executive of, of his company. Yes, uh, Harvey Weinstein is an executive, but I don't necessarily think he is a garden variety executive. No, maybe not garden variety, but we're talking about executives. I mean, yeah. executives maybe get a bad rap because of the Harvey Weinsteins and some of the people out there who are well-known. Well, I also but, think that it's easy for uh, people like myself to go into a room with an executive and pitch them an idea that we think is just brilliant drop dead brilliant best idea i ever best had thing ever yeah you need to hire me and pay Why me lots of money not have a bag of money in my hand yeah, right now exactly and then the executive says no and uh all of us who who do that i mean firstly it's like applying to a college you, you, you don't know if what you're bringing no matter how good is the good thing that they need that day a college with only 14 people in it <laughs> basically you're it's more like applying to preschool uh, it really is in Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, we've got a three-year wait list, so that means you got to plan on having a child in about two years if you'd like to get in. Exactly. 
but uh, what what made me think about this was actually uh, to circle back to you know as our steady listeners will know I have a two year old child swear jar swear jar and so with uh, having a two year old kid uh, you watch a lot of kids programming and there's tons of it on YouTube and some of it is like you know Sesame Street or Yo Gabba Gabba or something that was already you know on on a broadcast network or was was curated by some executive branch of some company uh and then some of it is youtubers which are just randos with a camera who make stuff and we watched one that had like hundreds of millions of views and this is a youtube rando this is a youtube rando and i'm not going to mention their name but if you have kids i uh i would figure it out i would lay money (laughs) and it's played by a guy who's not really an actor and he's not really good and he's doing a shitty voice and he's built a an empire of merchandise and stuff. Oh, you can buy t-shirts. You can buy all kinds of figures and Hats. stuff like that. And kids eat this stuff up. And, you know, I, I said something about it on Facebook. And a lot of my parent friends were like, oh, my God, I can't stand that guy. But my kid loves him. And I, I have to say that it's like I look at it and I'm like, w- OK, so here's the deal. There was no executive that greenlit this person's show. No, they had time and effort yeah. and you know, this person stuff. went out and yeah, it said like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to create this. I'm going to call it a character. Uh, it's really just a caricature of, of a bad idea. And I'm going to make this show. And then it's outrageously successful. So on the one hand you say, okay, this is the free market working on its own and doing good work. On the other hand, like I will, uh, and again, I'm not a kid's show aficionado. I'm watching them out of necessity, but I'll watch a Sesame street kind of a thing and go like, I can appreciate the, the writing and the music and the artistry that goes into the puppetry and, you know, even things like color correction and stuff that you're not going to get on this rando YouTube channel. You see craftsmanship in every corner of, of how, you know, the puppets or whatever are made. So it makes me wonder, like, I, I, I don't, there isn't really an answer to the question that I'm about to pose. I, I do feel like as creators, we find ourselves in not opposition to executives when you're working on a project. Hopefully you're working in collaboration with an executive. You know, the executives, for instance, that I worked with at Shutter when I was making Video Palace were brilliant and their ideas, all of their notes were like, oh yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Or, oh yeah, that builds on the idea that we had. And it was because we were all there to make the same thing and they were fresh eyes on what we were doing, right? Like that's the relationship you want. That's how it should be. Yeah. And I've had relationships like that. I've had relationships that are more confrontational or adversarial. But at the end of the day, you're still all trying to make a good thing. And I'm sure that this YouTube person who has, you know, like all this money now probably has executives at his own company who work for him and answer to him. But it's all like following this one person's vision. And so I'm really it's really an open question. Is that a good thing? What do you think? Probably. Really? You think it's a good thing? Yeah, I think it's probably a good thing if you can work in collaboration with your executive and everyone's on the same page and you... Can... No, I'm, but I'm saying like this guy uh, is probably... I, I don't know anything about his operation, so I, I am completely talking out my oh, ass. I'm sorry, you are you mean in relation to that this person just willed it from whole cloth, willed it from the ground and, to, and to create successful it? And is, is super successful. So like... Clearly, he's providing something that people want. Yeah. Clearly, that is, you know, and, and he's being rewarded for it. So... You know, maybe no executive would sign off, but maybe a smart executive would because they would have made a bunch of money from this guy. I think, though, like, wouldn't it again? You, you haven't seen this, and I, I, didn't I have not m- mentioned it to you off mic, but it's like I feel like an executive would look at it and go, like, Okay, here's what's working about it. Here's some things that we need to strengthen. Fix. Yeah. yeah. 
and I feel like there isn't that voice. So you're just kind of seeing the raw feed out of the brain of somebody who's trying to make a kid's show so they can make a lot of money making a kid's show. You just described, though, 95% of all everything on YouTube. Yeah, that's you true. Did. Yeah. I mean, and it doesn't it's not all just for kids. It's it's everything out there. You don't have a you don't have an editorial board. You've got yeah. a single vision from a single person and either it works or it doesn't. No, no. I and I and I understand that. I guess I'm what I'm saying is would these things be better if they were run through some kind of filter? Pro, yeah. If there was a boss if, if a, YouTube was the uh, you know grand poobah executive of this whole thing and that they they curated certain artists who then put their stuff out into the world something like that I mean they tried that I've, yeah that they did it didn't it didn't and, quite work I actually they, I actually was interviewed to direct a movie that was made for YouTube read for the uh, I've probably mentioned it on here before you have yeah. it was the smosh smosh the YouTube yeah. channel and you know those guys are cool and the movie got made and you can watch it on YouTube now. It's called Ghostmates. I didn't make it. It was actually directed by Tim Robbins' son. Oh, wow. Yeah. But, I mean, it was kind of interesting to go into a room with the two guys who created this YouTube sensation who kind of wrote it and starred in it, and that was their thing, and kind of understand, you know, I, I don't know. It's it's just you're not really dealing with a movie star. You're not really dealing with a network. You're dealing with kind of its own it's a, a thing that is a, it's a new thing, and we don't really know how to deal with those like people who are who are coming from a more conventional filmmaking background it's it's a little bit of a culture shift i would say like i'm not and if i'd been given that job those guys seem perfectly cool i'm not like running them down and saying that they were dicks because they weren't no no i i don't think anyone thinks that you're you're saying that i think that, that i mean this is a paradigm shift for the way that stuff is actually being crafted and put into the world without necessarily the oversight of a machine that says we control the money and we have final say yeah so is that a bad thing I, I can't I can't see how it's a bad thing since it's being it's working and being successful. Does it mean that there's a lot of probably terrible content that's being created and content as the catch all phrase for movies and television and well, web series and everything else? I think else? when we're when we're yes. talking about YouTube, you, think, YouTube is full of content. YouTube is just a toothpaste tube full of full of whatever gets crammed in the other side. Yes, yes, and I and I think that most of it for most people is not stuff that they want to watch. So. Yeah, yeah. You have you have the, the, it's now about curation, it's now about finding the the rose amongst the thorns. Interesting. Anyway, okay. That that was really all I had to say. Like I'm just I'm just curious and feel free to hit us up if you're a giant YouTube fan and there are YouTube channels that you love to uh, watch or there are specific things on YouTube that you find amazing that you think I should watch. I mean, like I watch tons of YouTube, so it's not like I'm against it. Maybe they have some better kids recommendations for you. Oh my god, if you have good kids rec- I don't know. 90% of what we show him on YouTube is just Sesame Street on YouTube, and that's just fine. Hey, uh, okay, so let's get to the interview. Let's uh, do it. So this interview was done with our producer, Alana Cody. So, uh, you know, busting out her interview chops again here for the uh, people behind Beast Beast. Beast Beast. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Hi, I'm here with Danny Madden and Christian Zuniga, who uh, is, Danny is the director and Christian is the cinematographer of the film Beast Beast. Hello. How are you guys today? Doing well, yeah, doing well. Great to have you. The movie premiered last night and we're kind of still, all the reverberations are still happening. Great, great. How do you think the reception was? It's nice to hear, I mean, you, the first time watching it in a room with hundreds of people, you hear the moments, you know, laughs or gasps or sniffs or, you know, whatever it is. It's like, it felt really alive last night, which is such a good feeling. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. So let's kind of jump into it here. Starting with the story and your inspiration, mm-hmm. tell, can you tell us a little bit about the movie and um, what your inspiration was for writing the script? Yeah, it, it, so the, the story is three different characters, sort of a triptych of young people in, in, a, in a southern town. And I, I think it comes from a lot of kind of stockpile of, of ideas and things that were experiences of mine or people I know or news articles I read, conversations I've had. They all kind of like lump together in my brain and they find little ways to kind of trickle out into a story and that's I don't know maybe I should find a better way to describe my writing process but that's kind of what it feels like at this point so I think that's how most people's writing process yeah. is yeah and there are just <laughs> some particular things in this film that that felt like I wanted to explore them ask questions about these things mm-hmm. through, through film So, and then uh, the title, Beast Beast, Mm -hmm. is kind of unusual and very catchy, actually. Can you tell me a little bit about the origins of the title? So that, we we made a short film called Krista in 2017, and we were filming at this uh, high school in Los Angeles, and we cast the film from their theater department. That's where we found Shirley Chen, the the lead actress, uh, from just an open call. And um, we cast her, and she brought it in, and, and she kind of told us about this acting exercise that she does at her at her high school as she was doing it. and it's this all the kids kind of like come around in this tribal circle and they chant beast beast ready to act beast beast and it, and it like rises and rises to this cacophony of screams and whoops and hollers and very fun very like you know that the the sort of like tribal energy of that was something that I, th- I thought flowed really well into like the DNA of the film. Yeah, yeah definitely did. So it started as a short called Krista, mm-hmm. and um, so tell me about the process then of taking it from a short into a feature. Yeah, I mean there was um, so the short focused on Krista, which is one of our three main characters in the feature, and uh, so for me it was it, it was a lot about just the short film focuses primarily on the, like the aftermath of this event. So we see this sort of like drab kind of like like a sulking person who is kind of dealing, like going through this thing. And and Shirley was such a treat to work with. And I just wanted to see more of like what is lost from her like normal personality, which is bubbly and exuberant and like and, and so fun, you know, and alive. And like to see that shift is something that I thought like the, that aftermath portion of it would be more powerful if we know who she really is like normally. you know? Yeah. So that was a big part of it. And then there were two other sort of the beginning stages of what would have been other movies for um, the character of Adam and the character of of Nito. And I sort of was like, well, let's just kind of like mash all those together and Mm -hmm. and tell the triptych and have it be more about a town, like a place and a time, you know, and the, the humans in it. Right. Makes sense. And Christian, were you involved in shooting the short as well or... No, the short I wasn't. That was um, mm-hmm. Lowell? Lowell, Lowell Meyer. Lowell Meyer, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, who I met afterwards. Mm-hmm. He was actually shooting another feature in um, Peachtree City at the same time we were doing Beast Beast. Mm-hmm. So I got to chat with him a little bit about that. Cool. Great. The I, t- I understand from what happened that Alec Baldwin's um, production company got involved after mm-hmm. they saw it at uh, South by Southwest. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So what was that like? <laughs> so we we did a Kickstarter the the night after South by Southwest to announce the feature to start prepping it, make it real in a sense. And so we did a Kickstarter the the night of the sort of like the final night of South by Southwest, and just to announce it to the world, I had a rough draft of the script, and we started to piece it together with the the Vanishing Angle team. We mm-hmm. had just done Thunder Road with them, and then they were kind of like, "All right, like Danny, it's your turn to to direct." So here we go. And wow. so it was, uh, yeah, really great in that sense. And um, so we started piecing it together. We were gonna just do it, film it in my hometown in, in Petrie City, Georgia, and and just pull as many free resources as possible and put it together. 
and so we were actually like getting towards like the final six seven weeks of before you know prep and going in and uh, Casey Bader uh, who works with Alec Baldwin reached out and uh, we had a chat and then I told him about this project and he said send a script and he and Alec really responded to it and, and then they helped they came in and helped kind of round out the finances and have, and Casey came down and helped produce the movie and yeah they've been hugely supportive and wow it's been great. yeah I know yeah. they were there last night yeah anything you know about Alec Baldwin like publicly he's like such a supportive father like he's so outspoken about his kids and it's funny that like he's sort of been the same way for this movie he's just like oh I'm just I want to tell everyone about it you know his like his energy is so so warm yeah it's, yeah it's been really Definitely. nice yeah so for the casting you mentioned how you cast uh Krista the, the lead mm-hmm. character and also I know you uh you tell me a little bit about the casting process that you went through yeah so sh- yeah Shirley just she did the short we did the short together and I was like yeah okay she's like she's someone who we want to work with she's just like she commits in the way that my brother and I like to will uh, Madden is my brother he plays one of the other leads he's we've just been making stuff together for years and years he did theater professionally in Boston until I finally like managed to corral him out west and be like let's let's do movies like you've been really doing doing it in the, the theater world so yeah really happy to like give him it's a, it's a very challenging role to, but to give him all of those that kind of those that depth and and uh, Jose Angeles plays a character named Nito who's kind of like new kid in town skateboarder and uh, hadn't really acted before so we we sort of like wrote a character who's coming in to a new place out of his element and then Jose really stepped up for the moments that we needed like real performance stuff yeah so each of the parts was written the, the three three leads were written for the actors and I feel like when you wrote it you really played to their strengths like for Jose mm-hmm. like um, you know it, he got to be a lot more physical and didn't you know and, right. and I think it played to his strengths with that yeah I, I like to see uh, dexterity on film I like to see people who are like actually talented doing those talents on screen. Yeah. And that's a big part of it, like throughout all, all the characters. So. Um, so, yeah, I was going to ask you, like, how was it working with your brother? I guess it sounds like you guys work well together. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 We get along. There's no like bickering or anything. No, there's there's none of that. We, we live together. We've, you know, been very close in each other's lives for a very long time. But I know he's he's one of the hardest working people I know. And he's he's going to do the research and you should see his research notebook it looks like a like a serial killer diary it's just like every margin is like you know (laughs) scribbled on he's like yeah as much as he can sponge up well and that was what i wanted to ask you what i liked about the movie is there's a lot of nuance in all the characters Mm -hmm. i mean there's not just a bad guy and you know and and so with his character of adam you know how did you kind of bring the nuance into that character and yeah well it's funny i mean i i like to think of it like that because i think a lot of that kind of comes into the like cinematography comes into the the conversation there because so my directing approach is iterative right take after take after take let's do variations let's try different things let's really see those get those nuances those those human things someone's gonna like touch their nose or their eyes gonna do a, a certain thing while they're saying this line and if you just keep doing it and you make them more and more comfortable and feeling alive and in it uh, take the pressure of a film set away then you're able to let allow them to get there and then we've you know we've kind of like find those little moments in the edit but 
But that was a big thing that Christian and I talked about is lighting for space mm-hmm. instead of like just shot specifically. Right. Because that way, especially working with like two of our actors, like really hadn't been in a film before and uh, just allowing them to feel like they're just in the room interacting and we can, at any moment, I can turn the camera from one to the other and one of them can leave the room and I can pan all the way 180 degrees over there as they leave the room and, we, and that can be in the movie. Right. You know, and so, so that kind of presence that sort of like availability was was something that we talked about early on because like what we wanted and I think all of that stuff leads to being able to capture that nuance right that was part of what I thought was interesting about the movie as well is that for each character you kind of created a different look you know cinematography wise for you know how you would capture it can you tell me a little yeah, bit yeah I mean that? that was something Danny had in mind early on it's like one of the first things we really talked about um Nito's very much like always in motion and kind of low and a bit wider and Krista's in a similar way but a lot more interface I think a lot more longer lens stuff and then Adam's approach was really a bit more calm and collected like static stuff or something on a slider Um, less handheld I think there's probably only one or two handheld shots with him well, mm-hmm. well, scenes at least, I guess, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something he, he had already thought of when he approached me, and I, like, attached to that immediately. That's something really fun to be able to do and, like, experiment in that way. I think the character I, like, kind of connected with the most was, like, uh, Will's character, Adam, being able to do, like, slicker things like that and light a little bit more because Will's a bit more experienced, so we can kind of shape the light a bit more and give him some time to step away. We relight, and he doesn't really need the... He doesn't need to like stay in it, I guess. He can yeah. kind of come back into it. So that was that was like fun for me to be able to light him that way. Yeah, um, and it's interesting where you have like the different webcam shots with him, and you're able to kind of break it up that way. And then with the other characters, it's kind of almost more documentary style. Yeah, for sure. Danny actually operated probably about seventy to eighty percent of like Nito and Krista's stuff, just to be able to like get that feeling. Because you have to know the script so well and like know them well enough to be able to move like that. Because you're not, you are like anticipating things and reacting, but you also have to create that feeling. So, like, to be able to do that, Danny had to be, like, right in there with him Mm -hmm. and, like, giving feedback and, like, being able to make those moments feel that way. Mm -hmm. Was any of it, like, improvised at all or, or no? Improvised to me sounds like a like a free for all like yeah. a desert landscape of like okay let's go in a direction. Uh, there was definitely like a form right. There's always like a container in inside of which we played you know. But I do like I like to be surprised and I, I I'm sure I look like some kind of like mutant when I operate the camera where I'm like I'm sure like my facial expressions are like mimicking theirs as they're doing. I, I like I try and just like really kind of like find the rhythm that they're doing and like lean it. I don't know, there's something to it that, that I haven't been good enough at describing before. So there's, there is an important step like for me to operate, especially in those like kind of intimate moments and like when do you just kind of like readjust. And, uh, and, and I was also like, you know, I was, I was one of the three editors on the film too. So what you're, you're filming it for the edit, you mm-hmm. know, and you get this moment, you're like, oh, it'd be so, like that moment's definitely gonna be in the movie. And then like, oh, it'd be so nice if the camera just started to slowly pan from that moment, and then here we go. So the, reacting to those things, you're almost like making edit selects mm-hmm. as, you, as you're rolling, so then you can sort of like, mm-hmm. the, the language kind of reveals itself from there. Philosophically-wise, how do you think this film like reflects today's generation, Gen Z, and um, do you feel like you accurately sort of... Yeah, I, I would say ho- hopefully honestly... I think is the sh- the short answer. Yeah, someone someone said last night. They said it was. I felt like it was like a. What was the word they used? They're like they're like. Oh, I'm I'm in my 40s, and I felt like I had this sort of like fly on the wall, like generational like <laughs> insight to these to these uh, people in, in a way. 
that I could just kind of like be a voyeur to their to their experience in a way that like things that I had never experienced without social media and stuff. I, I don't know. I think that to me, it's like there's a lot to just try and show the world as it is right now. You know, people have a crush on somebody and they go home and they look up pictures and videos of them to sort of like live in that it's not like going home and like I don't know my version's like writing a name a bunch of times in a notebook you know and like drawing hearts around it you know like it, it, there's there's a you know there's new versions of that I think and um so for me it wasn't any kind of like like a critique on social media and stuff. it was just like this is a fact of life and let's show this and let's also like take advantage of that like visually and use the textures of these ways that that people are visually communicating these days and how do we put that into the what the story is well i felt like also you really built a lot of sympathy for each character mm -hmm. you know nobody is just a bad guy or just a good guy right and and, and this film is a lot about and, and incorporating the, the sort of like quote unquote like third party footage is it is these are ways that these characters portray themselves so an important part of this movie is like we see that this is what Adam is putting out in the world. This is what Chris is putting out in the world. These are the tricks that Nito does that he wants to post online. And then we get to then step into our like, you know, like real camera, you know, <laughs> and uh, and be like, no, well, this is what's really going on there. This is who they really are behind it, you know, and, you, and then we get to kind of like observe what aligns and what doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like you were trying to be non-judgmental with, you know. A lot of what was yeah, happening. You try to be like in our lives too, yeah. right? <laughs> Hopefully. So, yeah. <laughs> so, Christian, is this your first feature? Right? Yeah, this is my first feature as a DP. Yeah, I mean, first feature ever, to be honest. What's it like making the transition to shooting a feature from uh, shorts? It's a pretty big jump, to be honest. There's a lot more to keep track of, I think, than you can like coming from a short that's what 10, 15 pages, going to something that's over a hundred. It's so much more to keep track of mentally. And I think this one in particular is like in a style that I haven't worked in in a long time at the time of shooting. So it's like getting into Danny's thought process and like trying to work back into that and, and keep everything in your mind because you're shooting things out of order and it's you have to like try to match the lighting and all this. So it's definitely a, a big jump and a lot to like to hold on to. But Danny was there every step of the way to like to help guide it. So always had somebody to fall back on. That's great. I, I just wanted to say that like we came to Atlanta, we we uh, interviewed some cinematographers, we found Christian, he re really resonated with us, his work is incredible. And what Christian brought to the project, just kind of like creatively and, and the way he was thinking about it was great, but also the team, Brian Stansfield, the gaffer, who he works with a lot, it's like really amazing, like put way more work than a normal human should or ever would. And the wonderful, incredible Austin English, who was our first AC, who put up with all of my like wacky we weren't slating on this movie. We did a lot of things differently. A lot of 85 millimeter lens where I'm getting too close to the actors' faces. And there are moments where like poor Austin is just like eyes just like bleeding, looking at the thing all, all trying to keep everything in focus. And I told him like anything could be in the final cut. But there's moments where I would get too close and he had to communicate to me that we were past minimum focus. So we had this like Morse code thing where he would click click the lens a little bit and go like that because he's 20 feet over there and they need to like let me know like oh back up a little bit so that became the whole thing so I, I'm sure I like took years off of his life stress wise but they did such an amazing job and I couldn't be happier with what everyone brought to it so, so I, my last question is what's the future of the film for do you think and, wow. and what's next 
that's a big <laughs> that's a big question. I hope it finds a place where people can see it and of different ages too. I, I don't think it's a movie necessarily like just for teenagers or just for you know quote unquote grown ups. Yeah, well, I'm in my 40s and it resonated with there me. You, well, there you go. <laughs> great. That, that's that's great to hear. Yeah, I have no idea. There there are very trusted and wonderful people on our team who are figuring that out as literally as we speak. So where can we find you and and also follow the film? Um, yeah, that's I'm also bad and bad at like social media and, stuff <laughs> and all that stuff. Understandably. Stuff by Danny on Instagram and you can just follow me by my name. That'll do it and and follow uh, Vanishing Angle is the production company and they're uh, they're really good at all that stuff as well, so. Okay. Great. And then after it comes out, we can check hashtags and whatnot for yeah, ourselves. Yeah, so. yeah. All right. Thank you very much for coming on the Cinematography Podcast. Thank you for Danny us. and Christian. Yeah, it was a great, great movie. Really great. appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having us. All right. So look out for Beast Beast. Thank you, Alana Cody. Great job. Uh, okay. So it's time to pay the bills, Ben. I like paying bills. I don't like paying bills. <laughs> I like hoarding my money like the Gollum. Go on. Uh he didn't hoard money. He hoarded a ring. Go on. You're thinking of uh, a Christmas. Smaug. Oh, no. No. Uh, Smog. Smog did, yeah. He, the the he, dragon, dragon hoarded the money. You could go with Scrooge McDuck. I mean, there are plenty of money Yeah, mo- I was going to say with Mr. Hoarders. Scrooge. Yeah. You yeah. know, the Christmas story. He, yeah. This is a, did you ever see um, uh, Patrick Stewart's version of that? Uh, I that didn't. Charles no. Dickens classic? Uh, he plays every part by himself. One man show. It's incredible he, to watch. He's amazing. I just hate everything to do with Christmas. So. Oh, okay. Well, you know, if you get a chance, Patrick yeah. Stewart. All right. So Aperture, Aperture, our, our, our lovely sponsor of the show, has an incredible light called the 300D Mark II. The 300D Mark II. A um, vast improvement over the Mark One. I, I just have to say. It is. It's, a, it's, it's really incredible. And uh, I think we sold several last week here at Hot Rod Cameras. And... Uh, Damn, if you are in the neighborhood and you have not seen this, you should come by and check it out. Demand your t-shirt from Ilya. Ask for Ilya. Demand a t-shirt. You you can do that too, but you should also take a look at this light. Uh, The light is incredible. It gives a huge amount of output. You're talking about equivalent output to maybe like a a 575 HMI, but with a fraction of the price. Costs Mm -hmm. about 1100 bucks. Oh, sweet. And you can put a lot of different attachments on there. The light is incredible and it is getting used all over the place. For anyone who needs a very bright daylight balanced light, you must it, take it, a look. It comes purely in daylight balanced Correct. flavor? Okay. They do have another version planned in the future. It won't be as bright. If you just want a light cannon, a powerhouse of light, of high high quality light, uh, look no further than the 300D Mark II. It is awesome. Check it out. Come, come to Hot Rod Cameras to make your t-shirt. All right, so we got another interview of this episode. Awesome. So, so uh, we're going to slide right now into my interview with the creative team behind Blast Beat. A little bit of a polarizing movie, although a lot of really good uh, comments from... Po- polarizing uh, how? Polarizing. Some people liked it. Some people didn't like it. Well, I mean, so. I, I understand what polarizing means, but like what were the things that... What were... What's the controversy? It co- well, it co- either connects with you or it doesn't connect mm. with you. Uh, the lead actors are brothers, and we talk about it in the interview, so I'm not going to get into it too much. And the filmmakers behind it, the writer and the director, both have brothers, and they uh, decide they really wanted to make a, you know, a brother film, a film about mm. the relationship with brothers. So it's interesting. Uh, it's definitely worth watching, and it's a Colombian film. It's also an American film. The film uh, has got uh, some recognizable people in it. And uh, that, that was actually one of the things I heard quite a bit was that they felt like it was a very young cast. And so they were trying to 
picture like, you know, uh, Wilder Valderrama as like the father figure in this story with like teenage kids. And he's, you know, a fairly young guy himself. But I think that maybe people just haven't seen he's, him since that 70s show. Yeah, he's so, probably in his mid 40s. I know it's it to, the numbers totally work. The numbers. I mean, this was not an issue for me, but I heard multiple people tell me things like this, like this. These were things that like were were. I mean, let me tell you, if that's your biggest complaint of a story, though, if your biggest complaint is that you didn't think the age worked of the dad. So, yeah. I mean, that's 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 pretty minor. So. So anyway, uh, w- without further ado, here is my interview with the filmmakers behind Blast Beat. Esteban, Eric, your film is Blast Beat. Thank you so much for coming on the Cinematography Podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So I saw the movie, and it's got a lot of stuff going on inside of it. For our listeners who are not familiar with the movie at all, the premiering here at Sundance, uh, if you could give them the, uh, the elevator pitch. T- tell them what the movie's about. Plaspeed is a coming-of-age story about two Colombian rival brothers who have to move in the year 1999 to America because of the political crisis in Colombia, but mainly because the older brother has a dream of working for NASA. And, you know, as they adapt to the new environment in America, we realize that the American dream, uh, the expectations they had of that idea are subverted and so we see these rival brothers coming of age together and coming together through adversity basically. And Eric, tell me about the process of, of coming up with the story. Was uh, it over a, a long period of time or uh, how did this come to be? Yeah, the story did take a long time for us to, to write. Uh, it started off as a short film about six years ago. Uh, one day we were, we were at the beach and uh, we were contemplating about what to do next in our lives. Uh, we were across cross paths and we decided we needed to make a movie. And uh, Esteban told me about this uh, movie called The Kings of Summer, where uh, Moises Arias has a scene where he's supposed to be this quirky Italian guy, but he breaks out in this perfect Spanish. And so when he showed me that, um, we were just so taken by him and realized that he had a brother. And then we have brothers. I have two brothers, Esteban has four brothers. and. We just knew that uh, we had to make a, a story about brotherhood as the main theme. That's how it started, and um, eventually, like all, all the pieces, all the uh, all the characters, they were also influenced heavily by our own experiences uh, with our families and uh, the experiences that we've seen our friends go through in South Florida. It's a really interesting look that you crafted for this movie, and uh, I could tell it was anamorphic. It looked like. Uh, if I was to guess, maybe like a older uh, Lomo or Russian style anamorphics. I yeah. don't, don't know if that that's what it was, but it's got a it's got a real character. The look of this movie almost is uh, is a character to to, uh, to the story. Can you talk a little bit about how you uh, came up with the came up with this look, or how you collaborated with the rest of your crew to to, to make a movie look like this? Sure, um, you nailed it. It's a Lomo round element anamorphics. From oh, all right, I good. Want to say, yeah. I, I still got it. So. <laughs> so, good job. Um, yeah, the vision for this film from the beginning, even from the short film, was always to infuse a very kinetic visual language to it so that every movement of the camera, the colors, the aesthetic choices at large that we made would externalize the, you know, these boys' personalities. One is an extreme metalhead and the other one is a deviant kind of a street cat, you know, so we wanted that aggressiveness to the visual language of it but also it's a period piece from the year 2000 you know so we we definitely wanted to give it you know a sort of a vintage feel and look 
and also ground some of the visual grammar in you know inspired by the movies that we grew up with uh that came out of hollywood you know adventure films that are have a very playful language to move forward the story but also try to bring out some of the angst that these characters are feeling we're, we're definitely going to talk about the the visuals and maybe some more in just a moment but before i forget i was struck by something just uh, a little while ago uh blast beat where, where does the title come from? I mean, I, I have my own theory, but, but yeah, Eric, maybe you'd like to, where, where, where do we get that title? Sure. Yeah, well, Eric is a drummer, so I feel like he's the authority in this. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, um, when, when I was uh, younger, I was in, uh, in, in metal bands, you know, and I was a drummer, and I was uh, a drummer in Esteban's, with Esteban, too, who plays the bass. But Blast Beat, it's a beat, it's a drum beat, where basically the drummer... Is so fast that he goes at superhuman speeds, and it sounds like some kind of machine gun just going really fast in 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 you know extreme black and death metal. So this is we thought it would be a perfect analogy for the brothers and what they're living through right now, which is the most extreme moments in in their lives. So that that is uh, that's. <laughs> when I heard the title and then I found out that uh, one of the main characters uh, wants to essentially be a rocket scientist, uh, I thought that maybe there, there was like the blast, but then there were also the other the other brothers, uh, you know, very much into the music and the music is, you know, so I was like maybe blast and beat, like the kind of things come together. But the other brothers also into the music. So it's like, I, I don't know. I thought I thought that there was uh, I, I, this That's is me reading interpretation. I never <laughs> thought of it that way. But yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Thank you for giving us that. We'll use it. <laughs> you, 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 you can steal it. You're welcome to it. If you, if you, if you if you like that, that you, it's, it's yours. Um, anyway, okay, so uh, how long was the production? I'm not going to talk to you about budget or anything like that. I know this is Sundance. You, we, we don't talk about that. But if you don't mind, could you tell us how many days this, this production yeah. was? Yeah, well, we shot in, in Bogota uh, for 11 days and then in Atlanta for 10 days. Wow, 21 uh, days. 21 days. Our script was 110 pages, so we went lightning fast. But we were lucky to have, you know, a really talented creative team behind us who were really aligned with the vision and the characters and everybody believed so much in the story that they just went the extra mile to get what we needed it was definitely a frenetic pace something that i'm not exactly used to working under but um i i think i learned a lot through that experience and just knowing exactly where to compromise and where to not compromise to to get the movie because that's the reality in indie productions the resources are limited and you have to make smart decisions you know at every turn tell me a little bit about the collaboration of uh, of working with your cinematographer and that whole process when you're when you're moving a 21 day movie with a with a not only a location change but a country change that is uh you got to have work with someone who moves really fast yeah, Ed Wu, who's the cinematographer, he also shot the short film. And since those days, we calibrated the visual language together, uh, doing you know careful shot listing, exploring all the beats of the scenes and how we could best represent that visually. You know, we broke down the script very meticulously in in the pre-production process, both for the short and for the feature. Visiting the locations, mapping out the camera moves, and also working with our production designer to uh, match the color schemes and the lighting, and to just get all the geography of our sets to to accommodate the the choreography of of camera moves that we wanted. Ed is also a very you know well-versed cinematographer in terms of finding the right gunk in order to achieve that texture in the visuals 
we tested a lot of anamorphic vintage lenses and you know we were looking for just that perfect balance of imperfections but also um, heightened aesthetic to the picture you know we tested the atlas anamorphics we tested the kawas we tested the cineo visions and we finally decided that the lomos were right even though they were the toughest lens to work with these lenses are so old that the barrel moves back and forth. That's right, external focus. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, quite often the mechanics are unique to those lenses. They, uh, yeah. there's, a, there's an old saying that, that comes from Russia, and I heard it uh, in reference actually to the Lomo factory where they made those lenses, uh, was uh, one of the engineers said that as long as they pretend to pay us, we pretend to work, <laughs> which, which, which I think is really true. But, but some of those lenses are gorgeous and fantastic others are awful and then there's this whole spectrum in between mm-hmm. and uh, I'm sure you got a set of good ones but yes the mechanics are challenging to, to say the least well we got a, a set of really good ones in Colombia mm. when we were able to uh, get from LA when we moved to Atlanta they shipped a different set some of them were in good shape but then they switched out our 35 millimeter one for the square the square front 35 it's smaller it's but smaller it, and it does its own thing you know uh and the but distortions yeah are exactly yeah. <laughs> so that was definitely another thing to adjust to our process because we wanted to put the camera close to the to our actors faces with the 35 but that square uh lens just the way that it breathed it, it, it just threw you off so sure we ended up using the 50 millimeter uh for the bulk of the production uh, a lot of people end up end up doing yeah. that actually with that, with that set so yeah. that that's that's very common um t- tell me a little bit about the, the casting you actually cast uh brothers mm-hmm. uh, to play brothers mm-hmm. but do i have it do i understand correctly and I, I could have heard this wrong that the older brother is actually the younger brother and the younger brother is actually the older brother in, in reality but they're, right. they're they're playing they're playing opposites <laughs> yeah so. that's right uh it's it was a, an, a really interesting experience because everyone on set was kind of confused about who was Mateo and who was Carly because Mateo Mateo Arias his name is Carly but uh, Moises Arias his name in the movie is Mateo (laughs) and he's the the older one that's playing the younger one so it it was like a like a really bizarre dynamic but um, it it somehow gave it its, its own spunk you know the the actors, I think, were able to play off of each other and uh, get each other's quirks and and, uh, and and adapt them to their characters so that they can, uh, you know, play play off a more legitimate way. You know, the brothers are being behaved. Yeah, this you know, as you could see, there's a lot of physicality to their relationship, and you know, just having that natural brother dynamic. It just brought so much realness to their performance uh, because they didn't even have to try to put it on, you know? It was there. So the minute that they started pushing each other, they just went all the way, you know, uh, from zero to 100. And uh, it was definitely fun seeing that. Sometimes we wanted to roll the camera before the scene was all, like, blocked out because they were just getting each other pumped up. but But it felt so amazing. I wanted to add something, you know, about this this theme of brotherhood and, fr- and friendship that uh, just like uh, Mateo and Moises were able to, you know, uh, achieve a hundred very quickly because of the trust that they have on each other, in each other. I think that we handpicked our creative heads who were our friends and who we consider, you know, our, our family in L.A. so that we can just speak freely about the missteps or, you know, any anything that that was going wrong in a very open way so that we would maximize our 20 days, which were each day was extremely precious. 
how's the the audience reaction been so far since uh, since debuting here at the festival? Are, are, are they responding? Well, watching it last night at the premiere with with a you know fresh audience, first time that we've you know sat through the whole movie and had you know um, people laughing all the way and gasping all, all the right turns. That's exactly what you want as a filmmaker. You know, you you work on you design all these moments for the longest time. And when you're putting it together as a filmmaker, you see all the seams. But um, once you play it before an audience, it just becomes alive. And we definitely felt like it did last night. That, that's fantastic. Congratulations. I'm really, really glad to hear that. So we only have a, a very short bit of time left, but I'm going to throw this to you guys. Is there uh, some aspect of the production or some aspect of you know post-production, the, the, the festival and distribution life in the movie that you guys would like to talk about? Is there something you guys want to want to add? I just wanted to, you know, continue speaking a little bit more about our cast. The conversation around the movie at, at Sundance has been how specific and authentic it feels. Um, because the norm in Hollywood is, you know, to paint Latino uh, stories with a broad brush. And um, through that homogenization of, of the, um, the cultural aspects of, of our stories, we, we lose so much authenticity. And so our process was to try to get all the family members to be, you know, specifically Colombian, American, and, and have that authenticity in their, in their accent and in, in, in the Spanish dialogue, all the, all the slang. That's something that we wanted to see growing up in films that came out of Hollywood, and we couldn't see it really. We never found that. So we couldn't associate ourselves with those stories. Now that it's our time to start doing that, you know, we, we definitely want to keep pushing for that you know, next level of truth. I think you were very successful in that regard, and, and you're absolutely right. Hollywood's portrayal of Latino and Chicano culture is basically uh, about as broad as you can as can be, and there isn't a lot of specificity, and there isn't uh, a lot of accuracy, I would say. And, yeah. and I think as as Colombians, you you pick that up immediately. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, and and also I'm sure like slang and vernacular and all kinds of other things too, which immediately I, I talked to someone at uh, at Netflix recently, and they actually told me that uh, some movies that they really at least in different countries in, in Latin America, uh, didn't do particularly well because the slang was and the the and the pronunciation of certain words was completely wrong and, and audiences would laugh. Audiences yeah. go, that's 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 it, not realistic. It's at extremely all. alienating. You know, as a, as a Latino, if I see a character, you know, that's supposed to be Colombian and he has, you know, a Brazilian or Argentinian accent, you know, it just takes me out immediately. It alienates me and I see through the seams right away. And so, like, I, I tend to wait, I tend to never watch that kind of content because it's not what I'm interested in. It doesn't make me feel good about myself or about, you know, whatever I'm watching. <laughs> Uh, you're not alone. This is a worldwide phenomenon. And I think that actually as the world gets smaller and as different streaming services in particular are looking to try to make one piece of content work in many, 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 many different territories, you can no longer just say like, oh, we did a Spanish language version or we no longer we just did we did the Hindi version or we did whatever it is. If you really want to be regional, if you really want to appeal, you you have to get it right. Otherwise, it, it, it doesn't work. Is what Stephen was saying before that the way to be universal is by being hyper specific and i think that was our mantra you know throughout everything is 
as we were curating everything, as Esteban was in the trenches with, you know, wardrobe and production design, all the little details, all the little things, you know, that, that, that we calibrated to achieve what's on the screen. And, and I think it was a success. I think, I think you guys did that. So, gentlemen, thank you very much for, for being on the podcast. And uh, we look forward to tracking your progress and maybe having you on again with your, with your next film. I would love that. Thank you for having us. This was uh, such a blast. Thank you so much. And now, short ends. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Esteban and Eric. We are looking forward to following up with, uh, with your project in the near future. I, I hope I get a chance to see it at some point. Yes, absolutely. It's always interesting, uh, you know, because n- now that I've been doing this for a goddamn long time, sometimes seeing movies that I saw at film festivals, like I'll look them up, you know, like something that I saw at a film festival in like 1997 or something, I'll look it up and be like, what the hell ever happened to such and such film or such and such filmmaker? Like, you know, did that film get that person to the next level that they were hoping it would get to? And, you know, sometimes those are the films that you even saw at Sundance, which is like, well, you got into Sundance. You, you won, you won life because your film got into Sundance. And then sometimes those films, they just disappear. And it, and it's, it's a real bummer. (laughs) I don't think that any of the movies that, that we saw or interviewed people for are going to disappear. I think I'm I'm not implying that at all. No, no, I I don't, I don't think, I didn't think that you were. I do think that it's interesting though that the journey that that movies are taking these days because it used to be you were in Sundance there was a really good chance that your movie was coming out there was a payday for you there's no guarantees indie film particularly today no guarantees you you don't know what's going to happen it could be an incredible success it could be an incredible flop a lot of people end up in the middle yeah and also you know you could also just go to a uh, service like Distriber or something that'll just like stick you on all the streaming services for a flat fee and then, yeah, you're on Amazon Prime, you're maybe even on Netflix. Does that mean that you get to make your next movie? Does that mean that your material gets discovered? Not necessarily at all. Yeah, I mean, so. it's like, it's great that, that the opportunity exists. And a lot of those movies that I saw at film festivals, again, you know, 20 years ago or more, like I would love to be able to watch them again or see whatever happened to them. And no, they, lot, most are lost to the ages. Yeah. It's not like today where there is actually some opportunity to, to really see stuff. I mean, so. if you didn't even get any distribution, you could say like, well, screw it. I'm going to put it up on Vimeo and people can watch it on Vimeo. And I've seen people do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, but the good news, of course, is that <laughs> there's no time limit on that. So if you made a movie in 1990 That's and right. no one's seen it, you could put you it up. You can absolutely put it up today and yeah. maybe even make a, a couple of bucks in the process. It's um, This industry is hard. So, of course, everyone's doing it, but it, it is rolling the dice every time, yeah. every single time. And somehow there are some people who I don't think are very good filmmakers. And the worst movie that I saw at Sundance we're not. I'm not going to mention. I can't um, wait to ask you off mic. Yeah, we can, you can ask me later. But it's like that guy's made like ten movies, and I talked to someone who's seen all of them, and he's like, I don't like his movies. I think they're they're all terrible. Well, but somehow I, you get to keep making them. Somehow you get to go to Sundance. Well, and the first time I ever went to Sundance was, as you know, with the Blair Witch Project in 1999, and never heard of it. And I was extremely excited to see as many movies as I could at Sundance, and I went to a bunch of them. You know, like stuff that would be at the Eccles Theater, which is like the biggest venue they have. I think it seats like 1,600 people or something ridiculous. And the place would be crowded for a movie that, as it turns out, was just like a movie that Showtime made to release straight to Showtime. There's still some of that going on. And and you kind of go like, yeah. And I remember one was uh, The Passion of Ayn Rand, which starred Helen Mirren and Eric Stoltz, which sounded like, oh, cool. 
but it's like basically a softcore porno movie about Ayn Rand. It's the weirdest movie I've ever seen in but my it's life. It's got Helen Mirren in it? I'm yes. there. Uh, I'll see anything with Helen Mirren. She's my lady. Look, they were all great. She was great. Uh, Eric Stoltz was great. And I'm sure that a lot of like, you know, real passion went into making the movie and it really meant something to the people who made it. I'm not trying to even undercut that, but I like went to see it and it's like, this is just a made for Showtime movie. Why is it taking screen space at Sundance? There's a whole section they call premieres, which are not in competition. Yeah. But um, yeah, they use it as a uh, method to get the word out, to build buzz for everything else. I don't know how. And, and I do feel like a lot of that, I mean, like, I don't know how much political influence it takes to get something into Sundance, but I feel like that stuff is being politically influenced. Yeah. And, and I'll also tell you that um, I have a real aversion to that, to mm-hmm. those movies. And I think a few other people are at the festival do, but the uh, average moviegoer that drives up from Salt Lake City and many of the people who fly in on their private jets, they don't. No. They, they want to be first to see it. They want to see the world premiere of something that is going to be totally. on a streaming service or in a theater at like in in two weeks or two months. or Totally makes yeah. sense. My, my, my rule generally when I go to a film festival is I'm not going to go see anything at the film festival that I know for a fact I can see a month later in a movie theater or, yeah, or I tried, on Netflix. I try to avoid that. I, I really do. I mean, so. I won't say that I never go see no, something no. like that. Sometimes but, the plan is just a line and, and you should go see yeah. those things. But but at the same time, uh, no, there's, there's plenty of reason to skip that. All right, so we, we've uh, uh, flapped our gums about that enough. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so what is your short end for this week? My short end this week is actually a Netflix series called Night on Earth. Not to be confused with the... Jim Jarmusch? Jim, yeah, the Jim Jarmusch movie from with, uh, the early 90s. With like Winona Ryder in it. Yes, that, it's, it's not the same thing at all. This is a nature documentary series, and uh, you've seen nature documentary series before, like Planet Earth and things like that, which mm-hmm. is like stunningly beautiful cinematography. Microcosmos. Did you ever see Microcosmos? I, I've seen part of that. And so that is good. incredible to watch. And this yeah. is right in the same vein with like, you know, dramatic narrative but it all takes place at night or most of it takes place at night and they use a a lot of technology that you would think would be very very exotic and some of it is exotic but uh, a lot of it is fairly sort of typical stuff and there's an interesting sort of little read that you can find online which talks about what they do and Mm -hmm. we'll put a link to that in the show notes but essentially in the production of the show they took a camera the a7s mark ii Great, great camera. Great camera, very light sensitive. And then they hacked it. They removed some of the filter stack. And for people out there who are not familiar with this, there's a series of filters that sit between the world and the imaging sensor inside your digital camera. And when you can remove some of those filters, you allow more light to reach mm-hmm. the sensor. And because they're mostly shooting at night, when surprise, surprise, there's not a lot of infrared light coming from the sun, you can totally get away with that and not have weird colors and weird effects. You just get more exposure to the sensor, more light coming through. Interesting. So, so they were shooting at like 100,000 plus ISO equivalencies because now the, the camera's been modified. And they do some long exposures and some time lapse, which are of like, you know, cactuses blooming at night, which is incredible. During some of the other sequences, and, and interesting to note too, that they do some stuff that is uh, more urban and they have to balance the street lights and the extreme low light. They use uh, technology like the Vericam LT, which is probably uh, some of the highest dynamic range of any camera out there, mm-hmm. any 4K camera. Uh, and then they also make Mixed it up with the Red Gemini, which is probably the most sensitive camera that that Red makes, which is incredible. And then they also did use this very very high tech scientific camera from a company called Leonardo, and uh, the Leonardo camera was used for all kinds of heat vision stuff at night, and so you really have lions and cheetahs hunting wildebeest and hippos and things like that that you all get to see purely in heat vision. 
and it's really really cool. You mean like the high tech version of of like Predator Vision? Yes, except really? it's not, it's not quite so colorful. It is monochromatic, but I've never even heard of the Leonardo camera. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. You can there you can uh, Is it like a scientific thing? It like is, people aren't using it as much for filmmaking. Yes, they use it for uh combat and aerospace and security like these the Leonardo brand you, they have a whole bunch of versions of different types of cameras, but yes, they make heat vision stuff, which is It's interesting sometimes how those cameras end up coming into play i remember i believe i was at nab with you when we both discovered at the same time the phantom camera oh yeah phantom camera was scientific purposes that yeah. someone was like hey maybe there's a non-scientific application for these yeah they were using it to like show that like if they shot a missile through a building they could slow it down to ten thousand frames per second and see in tiny increments what it did to every part of the building in every frame and uh, that's kind of what happens. A lot of this sort of high-tech, cool stuff that people go, ooh and ah, mm-hmm. when they watch these nature documentaries. And it's pretty interesting that there's a bunch of camera people out there in the wilderness with lions and cheetahs and everything else. Uh, potentially, I don't know if they're risking their lives, but I'm saying it's 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 interesting to watch the, uh, you know, the Darwin survival of the fittest being played out ahead of you and right in front of you. And they have vampire bats with seals and all kinds of other things that you just don't expect. So you should have started with vampire bats and I would have been like all in on the show. I, I know that you, I know that you'll be all, you, in anyway, you save so. that for the end. Just, just yeah, take, that's, that's my cap. You just that's, sealed the deal, man. Vampire, anything. <laughs> all right, Ben, what's your short end this week? Well, vampire bats just segues perfectly to what I wanted to talk about. So this week, The Invisible Man came out in theaters, uh, direct, written and directed by Lee Wannell, who I've never actually met directly, but he is a horror film guy, probably best known for writing the first Saw movie. And he's he's made a bunch of movies that, uh, as a writer, and he worked with James Wan on on several of those. And then a couple of years ago... He hasn't had much of a career. <laughs> not <guy>. much. <laughs> well, and also, by the way, if you've seen the first Saw... Yeah, well, I mean... And, and of course, I'm being facetious because James Wan has this incredible career. James Wan's amazing. Yeah. Uh, but, well, I thought you were talking about Lee Wano. Okay. Uh, Wano. Wano. Regardless, if you've seen the first Saw, he's the guy who's in the bathroom chained to the bathtub in the same scene with um, with Carrie Elwes. Carrie like Elwes, all, yeah. All, the, yeah. They, all of their scenes are together. So he not only wrote Saw, but he's in he, the first he's Saw. in the movie, yeah. Uh, and he made a movie called Upgrade that uh, came out around the time my son was born and I wasn't able to see it in the theater because I totally would have. Uh, also the name of the pimp from Idiocracy. <laughs> Sorry. So, uh, That's where, where my brain went was Idiocracy. But I, I watched it streaming on HBO not long ago, um, and it's it's really fun. I, I, like, it's a really cool, it's not a horror movie, it's kind of like a weird sci-fi action thing with, it's got its own, it's got horror moments, but I would say it's mostly like a sci-fi kind of a thing. Nice. Uh, and it's really well done. And it's, it's a movie that, like, when you think about it afterwards, you're like, there's really not that many characters and locations in this, but it feels bigger than it is sure. because of the filmmaking, really. So uh, Invisible Man is kind of his first like big mainstream wide release movie. And it's because Blumhouse, which hopefully our listeners know about Blumhouse. But if you don't, Blumhouse, you know, kind of started with making small movies with James Wan and a lot of other people. Low budgets, you know, kind of uh, cinch cinch their uh, belts in. I think uh, Paranormal Activity might have been one of their early ones. No, Paranormal Activity was released by Paramount. But they worked with filmmakers like that. And uh, they made low budget films, you know, one after another. And they've built a huge reputation for making really high quality stuff at a low budget. I've had one. They, they did make Paranormal Activity, actually. Well, they released Paranormal or they Activity. Released, yeah. or, or in Pelly made Plus it. Plus The Purge, yeah. Get Out, you know. Tons. Yeah, Get Out is probably one of their bigger hits. And uh, I've actually been to their offices. Can I tell you my favorite thing about the Blumhouse office? Please. 
Do they have a classic asteroids machine? Uh, okay, so I was there, and it's a really cool-looking building, not in downtown L.A., but it's kind of uh, not far from Silver Lake. And uh, I don't know exactly what part of town it's in, but um, I'm at this. I'm at the building. It's the part called Los Angeles. <laughs> it's like the joke in L.A. is like if you don't know where it is, it's just Los Angeles, which is fair. Yeah. Um, but it's near Silver Lake. And I asked the executive who I was meeting with, like, what's the story with this building? Because it's a really interesting building. And he told me, like, oh, yeah, you know, it's designed by this such and such famous architecture firm in the 1930s or whatever. But, you know, for like 20 something years, it was the world headquarters of Cat Fancy magazine. <laughs> Cat Fancy. Awesome. So, so, so I'm imagining so this incredible building. That, so, that this, this bastion to I'm horror just imagining this is, like uh, cigar chomping uh, executive editor of Cat Fancy magazine being like, I said I wanted a tabby on the cover. Get that get that stripy crap out of here. I don't know what that character is. <laughs> Could you make it a calico? <laughs> President's asking for a calico. Just Give like calico. I just, I, I just imagine. But anyway, I just, I just love that. You, like, you didn't get my wag the dog reference, but that's fine. That's I didn't. Fine. Get, no, I, I'm sorry. I didn't get your wag the dog could, reference. Could it be a white, white cat? No, I'm sorry. I, I, I saw wag the dog in the theater once and not since. So no, it's worth seeing again. It's, it's good. It's in the memory. era of fake news, yeah. definitely it's worth seeing. Uh, anyway, Blumhouse, as far as I know, is rebooting. Okay, okay. so a few years ago, uh, Universal tried to reboot their classic monsters, which, you know, is like the Wolfman and, the, and Dracula and the Invisible mummy. Man. Yeah. And so they remade the mummy with uh, Tom Bo- Cruise. Kinda, instead of Boris Karloff. Kind of uh, tanked. Yeah. Kind of tanked. Oh. I mean, they'd done a very successful run of the mummy with uh, Brendan Fraser back in the, in the early aughts. But uh, the Tom Cruise one, which I actually hear isn't bad, but I haven't seen it, uh, and neither did probably whoever you are listening to us because it tanked. They did a movie called Dracula Untold that was kind of a Dracula prequel. And what I thought they were doing kind of goofballs with it was they were retelling classic horror movies, not as horror movies. So so they made The Mummy into like a big action movie and they made Dracula into a big action movie. And it frustrated me that they did that. So I was very happy to hear that Blumhouse was sort of spearheading a re-reboot of this idea. Ooh, they were taking them over. And uh, the first one of those, as far as I know, is The Invisible Man, which was, uh, by all accounts, an enormous hit. What did you say? It was $27 million? $29 million. Killed it. $29 million. Winner of on, the box office. On a winner, se- winner, chicken dinner. On a $7 million budget. Now, I don't necessarily think, uh, you know, raking in the dollars is any metric of being a good film. But what, what makes me happy about this is that we're rebooting the classic Universal monster movies, and we're letting them be horror movies. We're letting them even be kind of low budgety horror movies. How do you feel about reboots of horror in general? Are you well, I mean, one of my favorite movies of all time is a remake of a horror movie, and that's The Thing. John Carpenter's The Thing is a remake of The Thing from Another World. Um, and I don't think movies get much better than that. I actually think there's a lot of things that are remakes that uh, the remakes are better than the originals. The David Cronenberg remake of The Fly, I think, is far superior to the Vincent Price version. My, my big problem is, is that when you have something that really is perfect... And then they want to remake it. Well, I think that when you have, yes, when you do that, like, for instance, uh, again, not to cast any aspersions on anyone. Uh, cast away. But the the remake of Poltergeist that came out a few years ago. I'm a giant Ooh, fan I of the. I didn't even know they uh, made that. Yeah. Yeah. It's got a great cast. Like everything. It's got everything going for it. But it's like the original Poltergeist was just lightning in a bottle and it's hard to live up to that. And I feel like. You know, you either have to say, okay, don't be like the original Poltergeist. Tell a completely different story. They're here. What they did was they remade that story. And I feel like, you know, maybe I I don't I don't know what you do. 
I mean, like there isn't really a, a right answer or a wrong answer because if they'd done a uh, the perfect pitched remake of it, then it would have been a giant hit and they would have made five of them since. Um, I think that a lot of time, a lot of times these remakes don't work, but they get greenlit because there's pre-existing awareness of them. I mean, Blair, the third Blair Witch movie, which was just called Blair Witch, came out in 2016, and it was directed by Adam Wingard and written by Simon Barrett. I'm a giant fan of both of those guys, and I went and saw the movie and I enjoyed it, but it didn't knock it out of the park. With it wasn't a hit. It didn't. It didn't make the money that they wanted it to make. And you know, the, I, I think about Blair Witch a lot and kind of roll it over in my head like, well, how would you reboot Blair Witch? And sometimes I kind of come to the conclusion of like, maybe you just don't. Maybe sometimes something can just be left alone because when they when they rebooted it, they did it as a found footage movie. Maybe the audiences don't want another found footage version of that story, no matter how well you do it. You know, like I'm not I, I, I'm not saying that their version wasn't good. I enjoyed it. But what how how would you bring that story back? And is it necessary just because something has name recognition value? Uh, does that therefore mean that we are beholden to make another one of those things? And, you know, it's it's a it's a tough question. But I feel like when you when you're dealing with like the classic universal monsters, unlike things like the Lone Ranger, which nobody on Earth wanted a new Lone, Lone Ranger movie when they made one a few years ago. But uh, with the Universal Monsters, Dracula, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, the Invisible Man, like these all, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, we don't, we maybe get a lot of <laughs> Frankenstein and Draculas. We don't get as many of the others. And, you know, they all have name recognition because the stories are compelling to us. And there's a way to kind of tell them in a fresh new way. And, and I, I haven't seen the new Invisible Man. I should, I should have started this by saying that um, because I just. But it's your obsession because but, you want to see it. I do want to see it. I just don't get to go to a lot of movies. But from what I've seen from the trailer, it doesn't really look like this is the H.G. Uh, Wells Invisible Man story. It seems like Lee Wanell has just, I'm sure he's kept key parts of it, but he's telling a fresh modern story starring Elizabeth Moss that uses that idea in an interesting, fresh way rather than trying to remake exactly the movie that was made, you know, whatever, the 1930s, 1940s. Nearly a century it's, ago. It's been a minute. Yeah. All right. Well, Ben, I think we're just about out of time. We, uh, we have to we have to uh, wrap this this sucker up. So and I, I mean, know we, honestly, we, I just want to go home. Oh, OK. Yeah. Well, well, now that you now that you've made that clear, then, uh, <laughs> uh, who do we have to thank this week? Well, as always, uh, not just for her fine producing, but for her fine interviewing skills. Alana Cody kicking all the ass, kicking all the butt, the glue holding this this operation together, the glue holding this ramshackle. <laughs> thank you for using ramshackle because, uh, you know, now everyone's going to think that we're, like really we're not organized, that we're like, you know, coming apart at the scene. We're we're extraordinarily organized, everybody. Yeah. Ellie and I now have like a set day that we do the host oh wraps. We God. never we never used to. Be, the, Did the, you know that that Miss Cody made a spreadsheet? I haven't seen the spreadsheet. The spreadsheet's incredible, we, and it's got a map of all of the episodes coming up, which is why I can say that Yakabire is going to be on the uh, next episode. And you can pronounce it. <laughs> uh, I practiced once or twice. Oh man, I'm so embarrassed. Anyway, so uh, let's thank Kay Zalatrachi. Yeah, everybody go to musicbykays.com and uh, check check his stuff out. And also just like literally write him an email and tell him anything about the Cinematography Podcast. Yeah, and if you uh, go to the Cinematography Podcast Instagram or Hot Rod Cameras Instagram, you'll see there's actually a giveaway for an Aperture Light right now. So if you uh, Ooh, I'm going to sign up for that. that. Wait, yeah, sign up for that. Am, am I, am I uh, disqualified? You were, one of, you were one of the few people disqualified, Ben. We, we only have a small team. There's like five people. Sorry, Ben Katz, you would also be disqualified. Oh, Sorry, Alana Cody, you were disqualified qualified but everyone else is what about k's is k's disqualified i kind of want to say that k's is qualified 
I think he should be. I think Case is qualified. He's I, qualified. Even if we say he's not, he'll somehow win. So yeah, yeah. Kay, Kay is just he, even when he he's loses, winning he wins. Life. He is, man. Yeah. He's oh. really amazing. Um, we also, as you just said, we we need to thank Ben Katz, our Ben Katz, our intrepid editor, who uh, we did not make his life easy no, this week. No, uh, no, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, Ben. Yeah, Ben. We, we, we'll, we'll, you deserve better. We'll make it up to you so at some point, somehow. Well, uh, that's about it. And then we're coming back next week. Next week. That's right. And then uh, all the weeks following. We got some And then stuff every like, week for eternity. And we got some really cool, really cool stuff I can't wait to talk about. Really amazing, excellent shows from people you've heard of who are shooting projects that you will see in a theater. Very exciting. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, okay, so Ben, where can people find you? Uh, find me at benrockonline.com, which reminds me I need to pay for my domain because it's coming up like right now. Ooh, all right. Make, make that payment. You can find Ooh. me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com, and on all of the uh, social places at, at Hot Rod Cameras. Please like and subscribe. Uh, tell your friends. If you have friends who are cinematography wonks, let them know that we're out here and we make an effort. Also, if you are just like feeling generous, magnanimous, and you would like to help us in some way because you like us, reach out. We, 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 we love help. We love hearing from people. We'll, like, even, we'll probably read your uh, letter on the, on the podcast. Yeah, we got a couple people actually lately who want us to do promotional swaps. They want us to like promote something that they're doing, and uh, we're trying to figure that out. So maybe there's ways that you can, you can help us and we can help you. That'd be wonderful. Well, thank you for listening regardless, especially now that we're here in the witching hour of the podcast, and uh, we will see you next week. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.